it's gardening season outside, or so I'm told. I am an indifferent gardener at best, unlike some of us sitting in the front row over here. My mom has a green thumb, and my brother inherited it from her. It's never really been my thing. But I love vegetables and flowers, so I try. I just feel like they should kind of do their thing, and it just doesn't seem to work that way. It's hard work, gardening, especially if you don't have a garden bed all ready. You have to clear the grass. You have to use a shovel. The ground is hard. Maybe you've got to build a garden box and fill it with dirt. You get all sweaty. If you have kids, they're fighting because they want to use the shovel too. Then I'm reading the directions on the little packets, and it's math. It's like, you plant this a quarter inch, two inches apart. And anyway, I'm terrible at estimating distances. Finally, the stuff is planted. Then I've got to figure out a fence around it so that the chipmunks and the skunks and the squirrels don't eat it all. Setting up a garden is really hard work. And once you get it set up, the work doesn't end. But it does shift. There's watering and weeding and watching for the growth and thinning the little seedlings as they grow and eventually the fun stuff harvesting and eating. We've entered a season of the church year where our rhythms shift a bit, just like that shift in the rhythm of gardening. We've done the hard work, the work of preparing, searching, repenting. We've celebrated the big feasts, which culminated in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the outbursts of ministry that followed. And now, we look out at our newly planted garden, watching for the growth. Welcome to Ordinary Time. We'll be here for the next six months, so settle in. Make sure you got snacks and comfy clothes, whatever you need. Because Ordinary Time has its own special work to do in our midst. Today is more of a thematic sermon about Ordinary Time. Three ways that, for us, practicing Ordinary Time shifts us toward greater alignment with the Kingdom of God shifts us toward greater alignment with the kingdom of God. So first, ordinary time shifts our sense of where God is at work. It shifts our focus from the spectacular to the small. It's really natural to focus on the spectacular because it's easiest to see. But in the kingdom of God, the big things that God does are built on all the little things. The daily acts of discipline and faithfulness. The mundane the repetitive, even the boring. Writer and Anglican priest, actually in our diocese now, Tish Harrison Warren, writes about this in her wonderful book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She writes this, Daily life, dishes in the sink, children that ask the same questions and want the same stories again and again and again, the long doldrums of the afternoon. These things are filled with repetition. And much of the Christian life is returning over and over to the same work and the same habits of worship. The work of repentance and faith is daily and repetitive. Again and again, we repent and believe. A sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. If we're only on the lookout for the spectacular, we miss the spiritual significance of the small. I was thinking about this yesterday at our first prayer walk in Highwood. 
It was a really wonderful day, and people showed up. Thank you, Nancy, for organizing it. And at the beginning, Nancy shared a few facts about Highwood. And there was one that grabbed me in particular. Did you know that Highwood is the highest point between Chicago and Milwaukee? Leslie knew. I didn't know. If you compare Highwood to a mountain, that's pretty laughable. But in an area, a region as flat as ours, it's notable. So if we only look for the spiritual mountains to see where God is working, we'll miss the spiritual highwoods. Ordinary time shifts our perspective to look for God in the small. It also shifts our perspective so we look for God to be at work not just in the perfect, but in the messy. This is one of the things that's so striking to me about the passage from 1 Samuel 8 that we have in front of us today. The people ask for a king. Their motives look pretty mixed. They genuinely need leadership. They recognize the sons that Samuel names as his successors are corrupt. Also, he had no business naming successors. That was God's job. So they need leadership, but also they want to be like the other nations. When God has told them over and over, don't be like the other nations, it's clear that what they asked for was not God's ideal for his people. He tells Samuel, this is them rejecting me and not you, so let them know what it'll cost them. But we also know from Deuteronomy that God expected it. It wasn't a surprise to him. You almost get the sense that God is saying, well, that's not my plan A, but I can work with it. And he does. All the kings that come are messy. The things Samuel describes about what it means to be a king happen. And yet God takes the people's messy requests and the messy kings, and he weaves it into his plan to redeem creation. I am pretty sure that my life and yours and our life as a church has had plenty of those, well, that's not my ideal, but I can work with it, God moments. Ordinary time frees us from stressing about the things that aren't perfect by training us to see God at work in the mess. Ordinary time shifts our perspective. Second, ordinary time shifts our loyalties by shifting our desires. There's a straight line from our loves to our loyalties. Show me what you desire, and I'll show you what you worship. Eek. That's why God is always more interested, or at least as interested in our hearts as our behaviors. When the people come to Samuel, what they express to him is a desire. We want. We want a king like the other nations. Up until now, they've kind of been a loose federation of tribes. There's no central government, lots of autonomy. They're really ruled by God and God's law. Think about it. God appointed Moses as a leader, then Joshua as a military leader when that was needed, then there were judges to administer the law. God had taken care of all of it and provided the right leader, the right type of leadership whenever there was need. And we know Samuel had been one of those people. Remember the story of Samuel? Here's echoes of it today. Eli had been old. His sons were corrupt. Now Samuel's old. His sons are corrupt. The people should have known. God can do this. So why did they want a king now? What were the desires behind their request? Well, could be that they wanted safety. There were real threats. The Philistines were a big deal. Maybe they wanted safety from exploitation. Again, Samuel's sons were doing bad things. The people's faith in their institutions was not all that strong at the moment. So maybe they just wanted more stability. 
Maybe they wanted Israel to become a major player in the scene, someone who could put them on the map, some political power. Lisa Sharon Harper connects this passage with the story of the Tower of Babel, says they wanted to make a name for themselves. Perhaps they wanted more control or felt too vulnerable. If they had a standing army, they could train it and feel prepared, rather than having to rely on God to come through every time with some miraculous deliverance. Interestingly, once they have a proper army, the miracles kind of dry up, those miraculous rescues. Perhaps they were just ready for a few more resources, because kings that conquered brought in stuff, gold, material goods, and also enslaved people that were treated as resources. In other words, Israel's desire reflects divided loyalty. God, you're great and all, but we think we might trust ourselves a little more. Yeah, we know you're our king, God, but we'd also like a little more power, maybe more assurance, more stuff. How very 21st century of them. When Eric and I were first married, we lived right next to the Northwestern football stadium, like right next to it. His family even got season tickets, so we went to games. I uh, did my best. I like the food. I had never lived near football fans before. You know, my family is musicians, not sports folks. Uh, and there was one house near where I walked the dog that had a big banner out front that said, a house divided. I had no idea what that meant. I thought it was a Civil War reference. Well, at some point I figured it out. There were different people in that house that had strong loyalties for different teams. Two different teams, rivals, I guess. Otto, you can explain it to me later. And this family cared enough about these teams to purchase and display a flag, particular to their teams. Well, I expect it works just fine for that household to live a peaceful and flourishing life despite the house-divided thing over sports. But it doesn't work so well when we fly that flag over our hearts. That's really the point of Jesus' words in Mark about family. He's not rejecting his family, but he is making the point that in the kingdom of God, our loyalty is to be undivided, given toward the Lord. And it's not. We're, we are always a mix of faithfulness and competing desires, even on our best day. God's desire isn't to snuff out our desires or make us feel bad about them or make us ignore them to just do everything out of duty for him. God's desire is to reorient our daily desires so that we're undividedly loyal towards him and so that he can fulfill our deepest desires, the desires underneath some of those surface desires. Because that sort of worship, that loyalty, that our deep desires being met, that's the very thing we were made for. Ordinary time shifts us a little more toward that. And third, ordinary time shifts our posture from control to trust. In 1 Samuel, all the players mentioned are trying to control things, except for God, ironically. Samuel was trying to control his legacy. He probably maybe enjoyed his status as prophet and judge. He'd been a, a really great servant of the Lord for a long time. But he made a mistake. <laughs> he wants to hand it down to his kids. He wants control over who comes next. And that wasn't his role. A prophet for a judge, 
the Lord appointed those folks. And his desire to control backfires on him. It's part of why the people ask for a king. The people ask for a king, again, in part because they're tired of feeling vulnerable to all these people. And control is really the opposite of vulnerability, isn't it? And that backfires on them too. We can never control the kingdom. We can only receive it. Just like we can't force seeds to grow. There's nothing I can do to make those little guys do anything more. That's in the Lord's hand. And by God's grace, they do. Ordinary time is when we practice releasing our desire to control outcomes and trust that God is doing the work in our midst. I have little seedlings growing right now, actually. It wasn't anything that I did. Thanks be to God. So how do we do this? How do we live into ordinary time in ways that allow God to shift our perspective to the small and the messy, our desires toward undivided loyalty, and our posture toward trust? A few suggestions from me today, and the Spirit might bring others to mind for you. The first is rest. Yeah, someone took a deep breath. Make sleep a priority. Keep some sort of Sabbath, which is actually difficult with the disrupted rhythms of COVID. I imagine working at home, that's a, that's a hard Sabbath to keep when your rhythms are different. And for us too. Treat your body gently. Spend time outside in this beautiful weather doing nothing. Looking at the work God is doing in creation. Unplug from screens and social media and especially news. We need rhythms of unplugging. When we have regular rhythms of rest, we proclaim the truth behind why we can freely rest, that we can rest because God is at work. If you're a reader, maybe check out the book I mentioned earlier. I'm going to try to read it this summer, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is all about how our everyday ordinary habits are places where God can meet us. God meets us where we're at, and that's good news. Connect or reconnect with people, with community, as you're able. I know we're in different places there, different, different opinions, different family needs, but connect somehow. And think small. A walk, a note or a call, an outdoor meal. I'm really excited to see some folks here today I haven't seen for a while. That's a, I'm just excited for that, that connection. Connect as you're able. Practice gratitude. Because gratitude is one of the most effective spiritual tools we have for shifting our perspective, our loyalties, and our posture. And then connect with your own desires and just sit with them. What do you want? What are your longings? What rhythms have developed in the past year that you really like and want to keep? What rhythms have developed that perhaps have shifted you away from your deeper needs and wants? What does Jesus want to say to you in those deepest of places inside? Jesus is the king of the quotidian 
the ordinary. He will meet us there. Thanks be to God.